This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, friends, students. Some of you may remember that two years ago, at the 30th anniversary of the Refugee Studies Centre, we hosted an international conference, actually here uh, in this facility, in this uh, auditorium, on global refugee policy. The proceedings from that event are now in the process of being published as special issues in two leading peer-reviewed journals, and other works emerging from that event have appeared as uh, policy briefs and notes, as working papers, and uh, other um, items. It's fitting now that two years on, we turn our attention to the people themselves, those dispossessed displaced and marginalized by the preeminence of the nation state. So this conference will will explore the voices and aesthetic expressions of those who have fled armed conflict, civil war, and failed states in fear of their lives. And thus this event is bringing together scholars from the social sciences as well as the humanities and in cultural studies and refugees from across the globe. It's aiming to look beyond the nation-state and international relations in order to give new attention to the voices and the aspirations of refugees, of stateless persons, and other forced migrants. Some of the themes that are to be explored include the historical and cultural sources and meanings of flight, exile and forced migration, as well as the significance of encampment, enclosure, and the forced settlement of mobile peoples. In our call for papers, we suggested a number of themes which might be addressed, including under what circumstances do refugees, exiles, and forced migrants leave a nation-state that is collapsing? How do they cope with existence outside the nation-state? How are resilience and resistance to the bare life of the refugee and exile expressed across different refugee experiences? What mechanisms and mediums are used to express loss, hope, perseverance? How do exiles, refugees, and other forced migrants perceive their futures and manipulate existing systems outside the nation state to achieve their goals of dignity, justice, and freedom? Our call for papers was enthusiastically received, suggesting that this conference topic was tapping into a rich vein of both academic and advocacy work. We received over 400 abstracts by the deadline of November 30th, 2013, and just under 100 of these were accepted for presentation today at this conference. We've grouped these 90-plus papers into 24 panels or sessions covering a wide set of themes, including the representation of the refugee, refugee voices and the new media, art and identity, history and memory, refugee youth, literary voices, 
resistance in the body, just to name a few. There are also panels devoted to refugees from particular crisis points, including from Syria, from Burma, Bhutan, and also the stateless Rohingya. Throughout the conference, you'll also find that there are exhibits of photography and art exhibits that you can view. These include refugee photography of Palestine refugees, of internally displaced Syrians, of displaced Polish resettlement camps in the UK, of the borderline existence of the Chen in Mozaram state of India, the Lao Hmong Vietnamese refugees in Thailand. Our final session tomorrow in the afternoon will be a closing artist's session, and both curators and the artists, photographers themselves will speak about their work. I hope you'll find the coming two days interesting, stimulating, and perhaps a little provocative. And perhaps the conference might also cause you to pause and reflect. Who are these refugees and exiles? Ordinary people just like us, but caught in extraordinary circumstances. Now I'd like to not take up any more of your time and move on to introduce our opening, our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeff Crisp, who will be talking, uh, the title of his talk is In Search of, of Solutions, Refugees Are Doing It for Themselves. Jeff is currently the Senior Director for Policy and Advocacy at, the Refugee, at Refugees International. He joined them in September of last year. Prior to that, he was for many years the head of policy development and evaluation services at the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in Geneva. He, he's also held positions with the Global Commission on International Migration, where he served as director of policy and research, uh, the Independent Commission on International Humanitarian Issues, as well as the British Refugee Council. Jeff has first-hand experience of refugee situations and humanitarian operations in more than 60 countries around the world, and he recently led an evaluation mission to examine the international response to the Syrian refugee crisis in Jordan, Lebanon, and northern Iraq. Just prior to that, he led a mission to examine the response to the Iraqi refugee crisis, which resulted in the confirmation of an important UNHCR change in policy with regards to self-settled refugees. So now, if I may, i uh, ask you to give a big hand to Jeff for his presentation. Thank you very much, uh, Dawn. Thanks for your very generous introduction and also for your kind invitation to make the opening presentation at this important conference. As some of you will know, I've been associated with the Refugee Studies Centre since its very, very early days, since 1983 in fact, when Barbara Harold Bond was initially setting up the centre. It's always a great pleasure to come back here to the Refugee Studies Centre and it's a particular pleasure to see that Barbara is with us sitting here in the front row. Despite my great affection for the RSC, I have to admit to some hesitation in accepting the invitation to be with you today. And that hesitation was based on my reading of the conference outline, which said that it would, and I quote, explore the voices and aesthetic expressions of the dispossessed and displaced, bringing together scholars from cultural studies, literature, and the humanities. Well, I found that outline quite scary. And I found it scary for two reasons. Firstly, it's been a long, long time since I was ever a scholar. And secondly, because I've always had great difficulty in reading and, more importantly, understanding the literature of cultural studies. 
Anyway, after a moment of hesitation, Dawn reassured me that she was inviting me in my capacity as a policy analyst and policy maker, and not because I had any pretensions about becoming a postmodernist. <laughs> so rather than talking about refugee voices, as is specified in the conference title, I'm going to focus on a very closely related issue, namely that of refugee agency and refugee action. And I'll be focusing on the ways in which refugees themselves strive to ameliorate their situation in which they find themselves. Hence the title of my presentation, which I'll bring up on the screen. Hence the title of my presentation, which is, of course, a blatant rip-off from that fantastic song by Annie Lennox and Aretha Franklin. In search of solutions, refugees are doing it for themselves. Just to give you a quick sense of what I'll be talking about for the next 30 or 40 minutes, here's a brief summary of my presentation. What I'm going to be saying is that in the absence of lasting solutions to their plight, refugees are increasingly responding to their situation by pursuing alternative life strategies, frequently involving mobility, transnationalism and irregularity. And what I'll be doing in the presentation is examining the causes, the manifestations and the consequences of this trend, as well as its implications for humanitarian agencies and for refugees themselves. I want to start by just saying a few words about the very notion of solutions, and I hope I'm not going to be insulting your intelligence too much by going through these very basic uh, considerations. I think, as you all know, the notion of solutions is an absolutely basic and founding and key principle of the whole international refugee protection regime. But curiously and interestingly, it doesn't actually appear as a word or a concept in the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. The notion of solutions is, however, to some extent um, implied in the text of the 1951 Convention. The Convention, for example, calls on states, and I quote, to facilitate the assimilation and naturalisation of refugees. And the Convention also underlines the need for effective coordination of measures to deal with the refugee problem. But that's as close as the Convention gets to the notion of solutions. If we want to look a little bit more into the notion of solutions, we have to go to some documents relating to the organisation I used to work for, UNHCR. And you can see in a number of documents over the years that this notion of solutions is very central to the work of UNHCR. So the UNHCR statute, which like the convention was uh, established in 1950-51, talks about uh, a key function of UNHCR being to seek permanent solutions for the problem of refugees. If you go to the mid-1990s when UNHCR drafted its first mission statement, it again talked about a function of the organisation being the resolution of refugee problems by seeking lasting solutions to their plights. And then I, a couple of days ago I just checked on the UNHCR website to see what it was saying about itself and again it came up. It said that the ultimate goal of UNHCR is to help find durable solutions for refugees. So we have kind of three competing concepts, permanent solutions, lasting solutions and durable solutions. I think they're pretty much interchangeable concepts but they're clearly very central to UNHCR's core mandate. 
Now, as most of you, well, I'm sure, know, this notion, of comp- uh, this notion of durable or lasting or permanent solutions has, over the years, been generally interpreted in three specific ways, three particular forms of solution. Firstly, voluntary return to refugees' country of origin, usually uh, with the notion that it should take place in safety and dignity, followed by sustainable reintegration in the country of origin. The second principal form of solution is that of local settlement or local integration in the country where refugees find asylum, a situation in which they progressively acquire greater rights and in some circumstances actually become citizens of that asylum country. And then the third classical solution, that of resettlement from the country of asylum to a third country which has agreed to admit them, and that again would normally lead to naturalisation and citizenship. So three quite different durable solutions or permanent solutions, Um, but they do all, I would suggest, have a common feature. They all involve reconnecting refugees to a state and enabling refugees to benefit from the protection of that state. And I think that's an important point because the very nature of being a refugee is that you've lost the protection of your state. You've had to leave your state because you can no longer um, rely on its protection. So an important feature of solutions is it's reconnecting refugees to a state and allowing them to benefit from its protection. And I want to say a little bit about how these three solutions have worked out in practice over the years. And I I hesitate to do so because we've got the preeminent historian of refugee affairs, Gil Lersha, sitting in the front row. And I'm sure he'll tell me if I've got it wrong. Okay, I would suggest that we've gone through a number of phases in terms of solutions to refugee situations. In the late 1940s and 1950s, Resettlement from post-war Europe was the primary solution. Most of those people who have been displaced in and after the war going to countries such as the USA, Canada and Australia. And this really, this phase came to an end in what was called World Refugee Year in 1959-1960 when the last few refugee camps in Europe were finally closed down and people were allowed to resettle in other parts of the world. I go on to suggest that between the 1960s and 1980s, local settlement became uh, perhaps the most favoured solution, particularly in post-colonial Africa, where refugees from liberation struggles and post-colonial conflicts moved to neighbouring states, were often provided with land, provided with agricultural inputs, inputs, and were given long-term resident rights, sometimes leading to local integration. In the 1970s and 1980s, attention shifted back to resettlement, primarily from Southeast Asia, from the conflict-affected countries of Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos, but also smaller but significant resettlement programs from Latin American dictatorships such as Argentina, Argentina and Chile. Which takes us on to 19, the 1990s, which um, in the quite celebrated uh, words of the then High Commissioner for Refugees, Sadako Agata, which she labelled the decade of repatriation. Now, why was the 1990s the decade of repatriation? Primarily because we moved into the post-Cold War era. A number of the key proxy conflicts that had taken place during the Cold War came to an end, and the United Nations started to introduce large-scale peacekeeping operations to oversee the transition to more democratic forms of government in those countries. 
And these two developments, the end of the proxy conflicts and the start of new peacekeeping operations, allowed quite an extensive series of repatriation movements, and I've mentioned a few of them on this slide. Uh, the return to Cambodia involving around 365,000 uh, refugees, returns it to various Central American countries involving around 150,000, an extremely large repatriation from six countries in Southern Africa to Mozambique, involving a total of 1.7 million refugees, and then a smaller but still significant repatriation of refugees to Namibia once it became independent, which involved 45,000 people. And these, I remember working on these issues at the time, being a part of these operations at the time, these were in many senses very positive developments and also very exciting developments. I think if uh, the most heartwarming part of working for an operational agency like UNHCR is actually being with refugees when they're able to go home and resettle in their own country. But I would have to say that while... Um, Mrs. Agata described the 1990s as a decade of repatriation, and that was accurate statistically. There was also a darker side to the repatriation coin, because during this period of the 1990s, um, UNHCR and its executive committee really established a new hierarchy of solutions, and repatriation was clearly singled out as what it described as the most preferred solution. And there was a very great deal of emphasis during this period of getting refugees back to their country of origin. It was really seen as the only solution available to most refugees. And this unfortunately led to a number of what I would describe as involuntary or induced returns, for example, of Rohingyas from Bangladesh to Burma and then the Rwandese population from uh, Tanzania back to Rwanda in 1996. This was not UNHCR's greatest moment. UNHCR was quite directly implicated in these involuntary and induced returns and so when the High Commissioner talks of the decade of repatriation I, have to think, I think we have to understand it had both positive but also some negative dimensions now trying to bring the story up to date what's been happening over the last 15 years since the year 2000 well I think what we've seen develop is not so much solutions but the emergence of a very large number of what we call protracted refugee situations and again Gill has written extensively on this issue and will correct me if I get it wrong. Um, let's look at what's happened over the last 15 years. That whole situation that happened in the 1990s where large numbers of refugees were able to go back to their countries of origin has come to an end. There have been far fewer mass repatriation movements over the past 15 years. And at the same time, the global refugee population has increased substantially overall as a result of new conflicts taking place in various parts of the world. And a growing proportion of this increased refugee population have found themselves stuck in what we call protracted refugee situations. Now, quite some time ago in UNHCR, we came up with a definition of protracted refugee situation. We defined it as a situation in which you have a refugee population of more than 25,000 living for more than five years in exile and without any immediate prospects of finding a solution to their plight. Uh, it's a very flawed definition in many respects, but it seems to have stuck to some extent. And as I say at the bottom of this slide, according to this definition of a protracted refugee situation, the number of people, the number of refugees finding themselves in such situations has increased substantially in recent years, from 6.2 million in 2004 up to 7.2 million in 2010, and most recently to 10. 3 million. So, I bring in the story right up to date. I would say that in terms of 
finding permanent, lasting or durable solutions to refugee situations, we're confronted with a very gloomy scenario. As I've already mentioned, there's been a steady decline in repatriation since the early 2000s, and currently the, uh, the rate of re- refugee return or repatriation is now one-fifth that of the level that was taking place during the so-called decade of repatriation. I guess one good thing is that more, more or less, by and large, refugee-hosting countries have kept, generally kept their borders open to newly arriving refugees. But at the same time, most of the major refugee-hosting states throughout the world have made it very clear that they are completely against the local settlement or the long-term integration of refugees arriving on their territory. You can see this particularly in the three examples that I've given, three major refugee-hosting countries, Kenya, Lebanon and Pakistan, all of which are vehemently against local integration of the refugee population. At the same time, the solution of resettlement to a third country has been quite limited. The number of people resettled per year has been around 70,000 for quite a number of years, the vast majority of them going to the United States. But resettlement, the process of resettlement, and I know we have some experts in the audience, uh, but the process of resettlement also has become increasingly slow, primarily due to security concerns in the US and other resettlement countries, which has made the screening procedure uh, extremely time-consuming. People have to wait many uh, months, if not years now, to be resettled once they've been accepted in principle. So the outcome of all of these different trends is that the average time that a refugee spends in exile has increased considerably. And according to uh, work done by Gil Lersha and James Milner, the average time spent in exile was around under 10 years in the early 1990s. But now people are living in exile for at least 20 years in many cases. And the uh, famous refugee camp of Dadaab in northeastern Kenya, the largest refugee camp in the world with around 400,000 inhabitants. Uh, If you look at the situation, you look at the demographics of that camp, you will find that at least 6,000 of the young people living in that camp are third-generation refugees. In other words, they're children who were born to parents who themselves were born in the Dadaab refugee camp. And I don't think that situation was ever envisaged when the uh, International Refugee Protection Regime was put into place uh, back in the 1950s. And finally, to make things worse, just in the last three years, we've been confronted with a succession of major new refugee crises, which is adding to the number of refugees and which is also increasing the likelihood that in future years we'll be confronted with new protracted refugee situations and I specify four of them here on the slide, the refugee uh, outflows in recent years from Mali, from Syria, from, and the ongoing uh, exoduses from the Central African Republic and South Sudan. Before I come on to say something about how refugees themselves are responding to this situation, I want to say a few words about UNHCR's response. UNHCR has been well aware of the fact that increasingly refugees are stuck in these protracted refugee situations, that they have nowhere to go, and little hope for the future. And I guess UNHCR's primary response has been to push the notion of what it calls comprehensive approaches to solutions. Now, what uh, does UNHCR mean by comprehensive approaches to solutions? I guess it talks about approaches which are comprehensive in three ways. Firstly, that they should involve as many states as possible. The search for solutions, UNHCR would argue, 
should not just involve the country of origin and the country of asylum, but should involve other states in the region, donor states, resettlement countries and other interested parties. In other words, trying to get a real international consensus around the need to find solutions to protracted refugee situations. Secondly, the UNHCR concept of comprehensive approaches is comprehensive in terms of the organisations involved in the search for solutions. The position being it shouldn't just be UNHCR and its traditional humanitarian partners that are involved in the search for solutions, but it should also involve development agencies, human rights organisations, international financial institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, and, where appropriate, um, international and UN peacekeeping forces. Now, I think this is a very sound notion in principle. I can't argue against the notion of comprehensive approaches to solutions, as UNHCR has set it out in recent years. And indeed, there are some very positive historical examples of where this approach has been successful. I see that Alex Betts is in the audience, and he's written extensively on this, so I won't go into any more detail. But the two um, comprehensive approaches, which are normally cited as being relatively successful, were the Comprehensive Plan of Action for Southeast Asian Refugees uh, in the late 1970s and early 80s, and also the Serefka program for refugees in Central America during the same period of time. But I think it's important to point out that these are very much historical examples. We're talking about things that happened 20 or 30 years ago. And if you look at the more recent attempts to introduce comprehensive approaches to solutions, then I would argue that there are far fewer achievements recorded. Afghanistan, for example, some limited success in promoting repatriation to Afghanistan in the past, but I think anybody who works on Afghanistan today, and a number of my close friends do, I think they are predicting a very bleak future for the country and are predicting that rather than finding solutions uh, for the problems of Afghan refugees, we could in fact be witnessing new outflows in the years to come as the international troops withdraw. In Somalia, a few years ago, UNHCR tried to introduce a comprehensive plan of action for Somali refugees. To be very honest, quite a bit of time and money was spent on developing that, um, that comprehensive plan of action. It has very few, if any, um, achievements to its credit. And in fact, it was really brought to a very swift end in 2011 and 2012 when the drought combined with armed conflict in Somalia triggered a whole new exodus, uh, both to Kenya and to Ethiopia. And in Tanzania, for a while it looked like UNHCR and its partners were going to record some kind of success there. As you may know, around half a million Burundian refugees repatriated to their own country. And at the same time, around 160,000 Burundian refugees were granted permission to stay in the country and to become Tanzanian citizens. That was the deal in principle. In practice, it hasn't worked out for a variety of primarily political reasons. Um, Those 160,000 refugees, Burundian refugees, are still waiting uh, for their certificates to demonstrate that they are now Tanzanian citizens, even though it's been some time since they were obliged to renounce their Burundian citizenship. So uh, not too long ago, this group of 160,000 people were described as NNTs, newly naturalised Tanzanians. Uh, We're now calling them NSBs, newly stateless Burundians. So a very clear, on my part anyway, a premature declaration of victory on the part of UNHCR. And I think this reflects, um, at the moment, a very kind of deep sense of pessimism within UNHCR. In fact, 
I met uh, the High Commissioner, Mr Guterres, in Washington last week and I've never seen him in such a pessimistic and depressed mood. He found it very difficult um, to come up with any current success stories in the work that he and his organisation are doing. And I think this was reflected in the statement that he put out and UNHCR put out on the last World Refugee Day in June where it talked about millions of refugees languishing in camps dependent on international aid. Millions languishing in camps dependent on international aid. Well, I want to challenge that statement. I want to ask the question, are refugees really languishing in camps dependent on international aid, as the UNHCR statement uh, purported? And on the basis of a number of recent field visits that I've undertaken, I would like to make uh, four observations about that statement. Firstly, I think the UNHCR statement totally neglects the whole issue of refugee agency and what refugees themselves are doing to find their way out of very difficult situations. It neglects the fact that as individuals, as households and as communities, refugees are pursuing their own solution strategies, even if UNHCR is not always fully aware of them. I'd argue that that such strategies, if you look at them, and I'm going to say a few words about them uh, in the rest of my presentation, I would say that that such strategies are understandably, given the refugees' plight and circumstances, they're generally designed to maximise the opportunities available to them, but also to limit or spread the risk with which they're confronted. And then right at the end of my presentation, I'm going to suggest that the solution strategies that refugees are currently pursuing for themselves uh, are very positive in many respects. They demonstrate refugee agency is live and well. But I also want to suggest that the solution strategies pursued by refugees themselves have and are creating some new policy challenges for UNHCR and other organisations. So I want to go through five or six different strategies which I've seen refugees using in order to avert a situation where they're stuck in camps, languishing in camps, dependent on international aid. The first and most, perhaps most striking strategy that refugees have been using in recent years is, put, is by moving out of camps or by bypassing camps altogether and moving to urban areas. Now, I think, as we all know, camps were very much the default model of refugee aid from the 1960s onwards. The automatic reaction of the international community and UNHCR and any influx was to set up a camp. Um, and increasingly, camps became associated with uh, the notion of encampment. In other words, restrictions being placed on refugees, disincentives being introduced to try and ensure that refugees did not actually move outside their camps but remained confined within those locations. But despite all of the restrictions and disincentives that have been introduced over the decades, we've now reached a situation where more than 50% of the refugee population globally are not living in camps but are living in cities and towns and other out-of-camp areas. So I think that needs a little bit of explanation. Why is it when states and to some extent UNHCR supported an encampment policy and actually introduced restrictions and disincentives to movement, how come growing numbers of refugees have ended up in urban areas? And I suggest there are a number of different reasons for that trend. Firstly, it's reflected of the global process of urbanisation. The world is urbanising, the world is urbanising and uh, refugees are part of that process. It's quite natural that as more and more people move to towns and cities, that refugees should also do so. But I think there are also some more specific reasons more related to the particular circumstances of refugees. One thing we've seen in these long-term refugee camps and protracted refugee situations is that conditions generally deteriorate over time. 
you would like to think that conditions are worse during the emergency period and after 5, 10 or 15 years they get progressively better. In fact, it's often the other way around. There's been some studies to show that, in fact, levels of assistance are relatively high in the emergency phase, but as the situation stabilises and as international attention moves elsewhere, conditions in camps actually deteriorate. Combined with that, um, which you might want to call the push factor, there's also a pull factor in the sense that refugees, I think, today have much better awareness of the opportunities that they can find if they move to an urban area. And, of course, this is not disconnected with the growth of uh, telephone and other communications. People are better informed, they're better connected. Um, they can talk to people in places other than where they live and find out what the opportunities are. And often they're prepared to take the risk of leaving a camp and taking up those opportunities in an, an urban area. Then I think another issue that plays into this is what I call the Little Mogadishu Syndrome. Little Mogadishu referring to the neighbourhood of Nairobi, uh, otherwise known as Eastleigh, which is now home to very large numbers of both Somali refugees and other refugees and migrants from the Horn of Africa. And the establishment of this area known as Little Mogadishu in Nairobi has actually made it much easier for Somalis, for example, to move into the Kenyan capital. They can be surrounded by their compatriots, by familiar culture, familiar language, familiar ways of doing things, etc. Etc. So moving to a city has become a less threatening experience for many refugees simply because there are already people they know there and they can settle in with. And then finally I would suggest that another attraction of the city for refugees is that cities are entrepôt for longer distance and international journeys uh, leaving the country of asylum and moving to other countries either in the same region or indeed to other parts of the world. And that's what I want to come on to. The second refugee strategy is what I would describe as onward and irregular movement. So my argument here is that in the absence of the traditional three solutions, there is a growing movement of refugees away from their first asylum countries. And on this slide, I've just simply listed three of the most prominent examples. Eritreans moving initially to Sudan, but then onto Egypt, the Sinai, Israel, moving across to Libya now that the Israeli border is closed, and then hoping to get across the Mediterranean Sea to Lampedusa and to the Italian mainland, and then on to Western Europe. Iraqis, we've seen a movement of Iraqis to Southeast Asia, to Malaysia, to Singapore, to in Indonesia, and then onward by boat to Australia, and I'll say a few more words about that later in the presentation. Very interesting situation with the Syrian refugee in, uh, outflow, which is gradually becoming a globalised outflow. Initially, it was very much concentrated in the Middle East, uh, but now we're seeing movements of Syrians through Turkey into Bulgaria, into Serbia, and across North Africa into Libya and Morocco. Again, Syrian refugees hoping that they can get across the Mediterranean and into Western Europe. That begs the question, how is it that these refugees are able to overcome the very restrictive border controls that have been introduced to, pre to prevent precisely these kinds of movement uh, over the past 20 or 30 years. And very quickly, I would suggest there are a number of reasons why refugees are able to make these onward and irregular movements, partly because they have access to diaspora networks that can facilitate their irregular movement across international boundaries, partly because they receive remittances from compatriots and family members who have already moved abroad, and they can make use of those remittances to pay for the services of professional human smugglers, 
Lords. Partly because I think something we've witnessed in the last 20 years is the growth of a very significant, what some people have called a migration industry, providing people with false documents, passports, visas, etc., which will enable them to circumvent the controls that states have introduced. And finally, and I think a neglected aspect of this issue, official collusion. I think if you talk to refugees and asylum seekers who have managed to cross international borders without a passport or without a visa, it's often because they've been able to pay off the border guards or the immigration officials. So there's a very great deal of official collusion which enables such onward and irregular movements to take place. The third strategy I'm identifying, and these are very much overlapping strategies in many ways, the third strategy is that of transnationalism. And what I'd like to suggest, in the absence of the traditional three solutions, uh, refugees are engaging in much greater movement, as I've just said, from one place to another. And in uh, many situations, this actually enables uh, refugees to have residence in multiple sites in order to maximise opportunities. So if you look, for example, at the Afghan refugee population, there's a significant movement of people between Afghanistan, Pakistan and Iran. People may stay in Pakistan for part of the year and then go back to Afghanistan when opportunities are available there or then move on to Iran later when the opportunity is available there. So people are increasingly living, uh, taking up residence in multiple sites rather than living in a single location. I think it's very clear that for certain refugee populations at least, um, a lot of split and strategic household movements are taking place. In other words, households and communities sit down and work out where different people should go and under what status they should go. So if you look at the Somali refugee population, Somalis are to be found throughout the world, even I recently learned in Nepal and Costa Rica, which is quite interesting. They're to be found in many different places around the world and under very different statuses. So, for example, in a single household, or a single clan, you may have some Somalis who agree to stay behind in the country of origin in Mogadishu. Others will go to exploit whatever opportunities are available in the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. Others will move down from Dadaab into Nairobi and see what's possible there. Others take the much longer journey down from Kenya through Tanzania and Malawi and Zimbabwe into South Africa. Many of them have ended up in Johannesburg. Others have become contract workers in the Gulf states. Some have become irregular migrants and asylum seekers in Europe and have found uh, refugee status in London, for example. Others have been resettled to other countries and now you will find significant concentrations of Somali refugees in places such as Minnesota and Sydney, Australia. And so I think these refugee populations, particularly those with the kind of more nomadic propensities, such as the Somalis and Afghans, have been able to establish these very extensive transnational networks which they can make use of to um, address the problems they find in really seeking permanent solutions to their plight. These diasporic networks enable the circulation of goods, capital, information and people between these different locations. And I'd like to suggest this is one of the principal ways in which refugees themselves are responding to the absence of durable solutions in the classical sense. The fourth, uh, the fourth uh, strategy that I've identified is what I call de facto integration, uh, which Ollie Bakewell, some of you will know here at the International Migration Institute, uh, he refers to it as silent integration. What, is, what does this mean, de facto or silent integration? Well, I think, as we all know, there's very limited scope for most refugees to uh, engage in a process of de jure local integration, in other words, becoming citizens of the countries in which they've been granted asylum. Indeed, in most refugee hosting states, refugees have very limited and very restricted access to the labour market, to residence rights, to business per permits, and most of all, 
limited access to the prospect of eventual citizenship. From what I've seen in the field, I would say that despite these restrictions, refugees are often able to find some kind of de facto integration, even if it's not recognised in a de jure or legal sense. In many cases, refugees are able to find a niche in the local economy and to establish livelihoods to support themselves and their families, even if technically they're not allowed access to the labour market. They're often able to establish social relations with local people, which enables them to integrate in society. They may even intermarry with local people, which again gives them a firmer social foothold in the country where they have sought asylum. Sometimes they're able to find local protectors, uh, local chiefs, local big men, local politicians, for example, who for a variety of reasons are prepared to tolerate and even welcome the presence and the continued stay of refugees. And in some situations, refugees are able to establish, essentially forge new identities and to become an effective part of the country where they've sought asylum. I won't go into the details now, but there are two very good examples of this. Angolans in Zambia, which uh, Oli Bakewell has written quite extensively about, and the Iraqis in Jordan, uh, which I've done a little bit of work on myself. Maybe I can just um, tell you a quick anecdote. I was, I was in uh, Jordan, uh, I think it was in 2009, and I was talking to a government minister about what was going to happen to the Iraqi refugee population there. And I said to him, look, let, let, me, let me kind of um, portray a scenario for you. Very few of these people are going to get resettled. There are just so many of them that relatively few will be able to go to the US and other countries. Very few will want to go back to Iraq because of the uh, conflict continuing there. And yet Jordan as a country has said very firmly that it's not going to allow the Iraqi refugees to, um, to become officially integrated in that country and in that society. So I said, here's a possible scenario. Maybe over time these Iraqi refugees will find a niche in the economy, they will find a place in society, they will gradually be more accepted than they are at the moment. Um, what do you think about that scenario? And he said, Jeff, I think that's exactly what's going to happen, but we will never admit to it in public, which I thought was a very telling comment. So that integration, even if it's not taking place in the de, de jure or formal or legal sense, I think we can find that in some protracted refugee situations there is this process of de facto or silent integration taking place. Another very interesting strategy that I think refugees use in order to address the lack of durable solutions in the classical sense of the word is by requiring local or fake identity documents. And I think anybody who's been in a refugee situation will understand the importance of documentation to refugees. Certainly it's been my experience when I've been in the field that refugees often approach you with their food ration card or their identity card or their registration number. Documentation is very important and it's particularly important in protracted situations where people are struggling to get access to goods and to services they need to survive. So my hypothesis, and it's not much more than a hypothesis at the moment, because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence but little systematic research on this, my hypothesis at least is that increasingly refugees who find themselves trapped in protracted refugee situations without any immediate prospect of a solution to their plight are engaged in the irregular acquisition of documents of the country where they have sought asylum. And again, I'll illustrate this with a brief anecdote relating to Eritreans in eastern Sudan. Um, Eritreans in eastern Sudan, many of whom have been there 30 or 35 years, nevertheless have very limited access to land ownership, limited freedom of movement and limited access to the labour market. And I was in eastern Sudan a couple of years ago looking at this situation and had an interview uh, with the governor of Gadaref State 
And I said to him, Mr. Governor, I've heard from a few sources that although we still refer to these people as refugees, a lot of them have actually been able, by one means or another, to acquire, to acquire Sudanese identity documents and therefore get round some of the restrictions that have been placed upon them. How would you respond uh, to, that, uh, to that kind of rumour? And he looked at me directly in, the face, directly in the face and said, yeah, I reckon 60% of the Eritrean refugees now have Sudanese identity documents. So I think refugees are able to get round the lack of the documents by a variety of ways, acquiring local or fake IDs. And again, this shouldn't be a particularly surprising phenomenon. Often, as in the Eastern uh, Sudanese case and in other countries, there might be some kind of ethnic or tribal solidarity between the refugees and the host community. Sometimes it's just a matter of money. You can buy your documents from local officials. I think probably that's what happens quite extensively with Afghan refugees in Pakistan. And as um, Oli Bakewell shows in his work on Angolans in Zambia, it's also a question of political power. If you can... um, provide identity documents to refugees, then it's much more likely they're going to vote for you or side, side with you in any kind of political competition. So there are very good reasons why refugees are indeed able to acquire local or fake IDs and thereby get round some of the obstacles uh, that confront them. And now I think this is my sixth and last strategy which is competing for resettlement opportunities. And I think anybody who's been to a refugee situation will know that for certain refugees at least, this is really the kind of holy grail in in a protracted refugee situation. People are extremely keen to get out of that situation and they often see resettlement as being their best opportunity to to do so. And some of you may be aware of a very interesting article, I think, in the Journal of Refugee Studies by Cindy Horst uh, from Prio in uh, Norway, where she talks about a particular psychological syndrome among Somalis in the dub, which is, in Somali is known as Bufis. And this refers to a psychological condition whereby refugees become so obsessed and preoccupied and fixated with the idea of resettlement, they they become completely dysfunctional in every other aspect of their life. The only thing they can focus on is trying to get a resettlement place. And again, this shouldn't entirely surprise us because if you're stuck in a protracted refugee situation, if you have no real option or no real opportunity to find a lasting solution to your plight, then resettlement is the least dangerous and probably the cheapest means of moving to a secure and a prosperous country elsewhere in the world. It's not only <coughs> excuse me, it's not only the least dangerous and the cheapest, but it also provides another a number of other attractions. If you're a resettled refugee rather than a spontaneous asylum seeker, you have a degree of legal security from the moment you set foot in the resettlement country. In uh, almost all resettlement countries, you'll be guaranteed some kind of support on arrival. Of course, it's much less in the United States than it is in Europe, but nevertheless, there is some support on arrival. Resettled refugees often have the um, possibility of future family reunion opportunities. And as I said right at the beginning of my presentation, resettlement in an industrialised state normally eventually leads to citizenship. And that is a very attractive uh, thing for many refugees. So given all these attractions of resettlement, it's not surprising that refugees should engage in a variety of different tactics in order to maximise their opportunities for resettlement. And there are a number of tactics which are particularly well described in a recent PhD thesis by Bram Janssen called The Accidental City, which looks at uh, Kakuma Camp in Kenya. Uh, I think it's coming out as a book if it hasn't already done so. And he looks at the way in which refugees compete for resettlement. He talks about refugees presenting themselves as particularly vulnerable or presenting themselves as particularly insecure 
in the hope and expectation that that will increase their resettlement opportunities. He talks about people changing their identity in order to become part of a group which is going to be more likely to be accepted for resettlement. He looks at the way in which refugees will try to establish and exploit overseas links with, for example, churches in the US or in other countries. He looks at the way in which refugees try to use education and language skills in order to improve their possibilities and their prospects for resettlement. So resettlement has become a highly competitive process and unfortunately it's not totally surprising again that bribery and corruption often exist in the context of third country resettlement programs. Okay, I've said then that refugees are doing it for themselves. There are no real formal possibilities for solutions. They're stuck in protracted refugee situations but they are looking at those six strategies that I've tried to outline, doing it for themselves. I think this is a very positive thing in that it contradicts that UNHCR notion of refugees languishing in camps dependent on international aid. They're not languishing in camps. They're often making every effort they can to find a new life for themselves. But at the same time, I think we have to recognise that the strategies that refugees are using do have their limitations and even uh, negative and unintended consequences. Firstly, I would suggest that the kind of outcomes that refugees are now uh, achieving uh, are in fairly stark contrast to the traditional durable solutions. I call them inconclusive outcomes rather than a real durable solution. And they're often kind of reversible outcomes. For example, it may be that an Iraqi refugee in Jordan can become uh, more accepted into society and find themselves a place in the economy, etc. But what if there's a change of government policy? They have no legal status on which to base their presence there, so they would be vulnerable to a change of policy. So Refugees who engage in these tactics uh, often experience inconclusive outcomes rather than durable solutions. And again, to go back to my original definition of what a durable solution is, the strategies that refugees are using often does not lead to any formal reconnection to a state. And I think that is still an important principle. We would still like to see refugees being formally reconnected to a state and able to benefit from its protection. Some of the strategies and tactics they are using at the moment do not allow that outcome to take place. My third point would be that, as I've tried to explain, by engaging in these various strategies, I think refugees are trying to spread the risks amongst their households and amongst their communities. But it's also very clear that in engaging in these strategies, refugees are also creating some very serious new risks. And I've just given three examples in the next bullet point. The irregular movement of people across the Sahara to Libya and then across the uh, Mediterranean to Lampedusa carries with it some very obvious and very significant risks, as we've seen from the recent drownings that have taken place in that location. If we look at refugees who have moved to Nairobi from Dadaab, for example, the movement from a camp to an urban area, what kind of... um, What kind of survival strategies and coping mechanisms do refugees have to engage in in order to survive in Nairobi? I would imagine, I've not looked into this, I would imagine that it involves exploitative employment, living in substandard conditions and perhaps um, being engaged in various kinds of sex work simply in order to survive. And then another and third example of the very high risks that refugees are running in engaging in these different strategies, the situation of Afghan children travelling all the way across Iran into Turkey and then to Greece, uh, often confronting very serious dangers, both at the hands of human smugglers but also at the hands of border, border officials and immigration agents in both countries. Another, and I think neglected um, 
downside of the kind of strategies that refugees themselves are engaging in is that it involves long-term or even permanent separation of household members. As I tried to suggest earlier, Households and communities are splitting up in order to pursue these different strategies, but it also means that they often end up in different parts of the world, in different towns and cities, uh, in different uh, places, and getting them back together in one place is often very difficult. And I've, I've seen some work, for example, on Sudan, Sudanese refugees uh, in the United States, which suggests that the kind of psychological consequences, psychological consequences of this long-term separation from household members are very serious indeed. Another quite obvious, um, less desirable outcome of the strategies that refugees are pursuing to find solutions for themselves is that they have evoked very negative host state and host society responses. And I've just listed uh, three examples here. Australia, I don't think I need to go into any detail about the way in which Australia, the shameful way, absolutely shameful way, that Australia has reacted to the arrival of just a few thousand uh, asylum seekers by boat. Bulgaria, we've seen a recent so-called influx of Syrian refugees, around six or 7,000. Uh, the immediate reaction to that has been to build a fence along the Turkish border to stop them coming in, which appears to have been quite successful. And then I think, as many of you will be familiar, the recent attempt by the Kenyan government to reverse the urbanisation of the refugee population by declaring that no refugees should be allowed to live in Nairobi and that they all had to go and live in camps. Uh, an initiative by the government which was fortunately struck down by the High Court, but nevertheless shows the way in which the wind is blowing in many countries. And then finally, I think a negative outcome of the strategies that refugees are employing is that, to some extent, the whole integrity of the resettlement process has been questioned and even undermined because it has become such a competitive process, as I've suggested already, and because it is prone uh, to be affected by various forms <coughs> of bribery and corruption. So, Refugees doing it for themselves, great. Refugee agency, great. But let's not forget that this does have some unintended and some negative consequences, including for refugees themselves. So finally, as I'm meant to be a kind of policy guy and not a postmodernist, I thought I should end up with some policy issues. And these are some questions that I've been asking myself, and I don't really have the answer to them at the moment, but they might form the basis for some kind of a discussion. Firstly, what are the implications of refugee agency and refugee mobility for the refugee regime? I think there's been a slow recognition within the regime that times have changed, that refugees are using some of these strategies in order to find solutions for themselves. But really thinking through what it means for the traditional notion of solutions hasn't really yet taken place, certainly at the operational level, even if it's taken place at the policy level. My second question is closely related to that. What does it mean to suggest, as UNHCR has done, that migration might become the fourth durable solution? A couple of years ago, UNHCR started kind of using this kind of catchphrase, and it attracted a lot of attention because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting soundbite. Migration might become the fourth durable solution. But nobody has really put any meat on the bones of that concept. What does it actually mean? How could it actually come about? A third issue which has arisen, and I think a very interesting issue, is should we advocate strongly for de jure rather than de facto lo local integration with host states? There are some uh, people, particularly kind of hardcore protection people, who would argue we cannot allow refugees to stay in this situation of de facto integration. We have to advocate very strongly with the government to allow people to enjoy de jure formal legal local integration. 
There are other people who say, no, let's take it a little bit more softly, a little bit more carefully. If we advocate too strongly on the part uh, or for de jure or formal local integration, we might actually be confronted with a backlash from those governments. It's better that we just work in an incremental manner, trying to advance the rights of those populations over a considerable period of time, rather than trying to beat the government on the head with this issue. There's a very interesting article just came out. I can't remember which journal it's in. Uh, it's by Jill Goldenzill. She's a lawyer, but she argues that, in fact, with the Iraqi refugees, UNHCR has been much more successful using this softly, softly approach than it would have been if it had advocated strongly on, be on behalf of de jure local integration. Another question which uh, I think the humanitarian community is asking itself is whether it should and how should it engage with diaspora communities. Um, I'm not sure where I come out on this issue. I can see the value of uh, engaging with diaspora communities. They are increasingly important, as I've tried to explain in my presentation, and therefore they could become an important key partner. At the same time, I'm a little bit suspicious of the way that UNHCR and the humanitarian community have suddenly kind of fastened onto the whole idea of diaspora communities as a kind of unexploited resource, looking to say, how can we make use of diasporas to make our jobs and our lives more simple? So I'm not quite sure where I come out on that. And then I think the big question that... Um, really is facing us all in this field at the moment and certainly uh, an issue that the High Commissioner raised when I met him last week is how do you actually encourage the international community to refocus on solutions when the world is preoccupied with major emergencies and I think I've already mentioned them, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Syria, Mali etc. So how do we actually encourage the international community to take a new look at solutions when we're really very stretched in dealing with uh, the current crop of emergencies. And then finally, um, just a picture from one of my favourite places in the world. It's the Torkan border crossing at the top of the Khyber Pass between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. If you want to see uh, transnationalism, mobility, etc. in motion, go to this place. Um, you can't work out who's an Afghan, who's a Pakistani, who's a refugee, who's a returnee, who's a trader, who's a tourist. Um, it really is mobility in action, a fascinating place to be. Thank you very much. information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.